This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. From the team that brought you the world's greatest laugh. <laughs> Robbie. And the world's wheeziest laugh. <laughs> it's Behind the Scenes on your radio now. Right then, this week on Behind the Scenes, we're going to talk about how Sam Mendes made the film 1917 in one long take. Because five years ago, Sam Mendes was coming off a hot streak. He just directed two Bond movies. He directed Skyfall and Spectre, would you believe? Spectre's not great. Skyfall's good. Skyfall was excellent. Excellent. Spectre, Um, Mr. I think the best one. No, Casino Royale. Mm. Jinx. Skyfall was good as well, though. Anyway, uh, as Sam explains here, he was up for a different challenge. After finishing the last Bond movie, I wanted to try and find something that I've never done before. And I kept reading scripts and there was nothing that I wanted to do. And eventually my agent and Pippa, who's producing this movie, said, why don't you just write your own script? And I made a lot of fuss about, oh, I don't write, you know. They said, just just try. So he just thought, OK, I'll just, if, if there's nothing on the table for me right now to get my teeth into, what a departure that is from Bond movies... He then just goes and does his own thing. He writes his own script. It was actually his first ever writing credit. And um, in, in resolving to do that, to write something of his own, it meant he could finally pursue his passion project. And the result was the script for 1917, which is a war movie that has a truly unique style. And here, here is Sam explaining why the project meant so much to him. The idea for the movie came from when I was a very small kid. My grandfather fought in the First World War. His name was Alfred Hubert Mendez. And he went to war in 1917. He was a messenger on the front lines. And he was given the job of carrying the message from post to post. And I started with this fragment, really. And he actually had more than a fragment. He actually had his grandfather's book, the autobiography of Alfred H. Mendez, 1897 to 1991. So there's your source material, your own grandfather. You're a famous Hollywood director. You've directed a couple of Bond movies and your own grandfather has a really interesting story from World War One that you can get your teeth into. I mean, what an amazing project for him. Um, he says his grandfather, Alfred, entered World War One as a 17-year-old in 1916, carrying messages through no man's land. Apparently, he was very short. He was five foot four and was often hidden by the winter mist <laughs> that reached as high as six feet. Um, And two years in the trenches left Alfred with a lifelong habit, apparently, of washing his hands frequently. He didn't talk about his wartime experiences until he was into his 70s. So we have the really simple premise of the film. Here it is. April 6th, 1917, as an infantry battalion assembles to wage war deep in enemy territory, two soldiers are assigned to race against time and deliver a message that will stop 1,600 men from walking straight into a deadly trap. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. So that's a very simple premise. Two guys, essentially the film focuses in on them and it follows their journey from point A to point B and amazingly it does it all in one take without any cuts. But war movies tend to be kind of ambitious at the best of times, don't they? Let's let's face it. You're watching a war film, generally it's epic in nature. Yep. You've got Saving Private Ryan, you know, uh, you've got Pearl uh, Harbor, Pearl Harbor all, all of those. Platoon. I, yeah, I was, I was Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, that was the one I was looking for. But Sam had even 
kind of bigger plans because he wanted to kind of subvert the genre, particularly when it came to how it was to be shot. I wasn't making a movie that is a history lesson. You don't need to know anything about the First World War. In a way, I, I wanted to make these two men could be almost any nationality. It's about the human experience of war. And it operates like an unconventional war movie. It's not a, you know, it's not a movie about combat. There's not a lot of bloodshed in it. It's a, operates almost like a ticking clock thriller as mm. much as anything else. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, or and even at times a horror movie. So it, it's, it's, uh, it plays by its own rules. And he was quick to point out as well that it was an outlier in Hollywood that year. 2019, if we cast our minds back, that was the mm. peak of the superhero's oh. obsession in Hollywood. I think that was when Avengers Endgame might have come out, I think was that year. And there wasn't much on at the multiplex that wasn't of the franchise, reboot, remake, sequel, superhero ilk. Right. So this was a very unusual film. And I like the idea of a war film done in this kind of way, yeah. actually trying to tell a story rather than relying on the big battle scenes. That's it. That's it. Yeah, exactly. You know? Transporting you into it. Really, World War One was really the setting for this, what was ultimately a thriller, as he says. Mm. And he was also, the, the other daring decision of his was to cast relatively unknown actors. And here he explains why it was important that the faces weren't recognisable for viewers. I wanted two young actors um, who the audience didn't have any prior preferably didn't have much prior relationship with. I wanted um, to feel they were two amongst two million. And in a funny way, I wanted you to feel at the beginning of the movie they weren't particularly special. They were just two average soldiers. Um, and for us to realise or to begin to understand why they were special, if they were, during the course of the film. Um, George Mackay is very, uh, quite old-fashioned, very internal, um, uh, but but very um, feels everything very deeply as Schofield and the slightly different class to Blake who is chattier and younger and more vulnerable less experienced in war um, but a, a, on the surface a much more readable you know warmer personality and it's a combination of the two the sort of you know salt and pepper of the two that um, that that uh, you know I wanted this unlikely friendship between two people who in civilian life probably wouldn't have spent any time together. Yeah, so he wanted unknown actors. That was a, a daring part of the kind of casting for the film, but easily the most unusual part of the film was that it's presented in one clean take. It's basically one giant scene. I mean, I can't even conceive of that. Yeah, no, no. The, the, it, it, when you I watch it, I mean, you don't really, when you're watching it, it's not something that you immediately take unless you're very observant. I'm not very observant, so I didn't notice it. It's only when you later find out that that's what it was. You're like, oh, yeah, wow. You know, it's all just one seamless. It's almost like a camera just following these guys on their journey for, for the entire two hours. And uh, this is uh, Sam elaborates on why he wanted to explore this way of shooting. It was baked into the the very fabric of the script. You know, it was it, my idea was two hours of real time and no cuts. Mm -hmm. Um nothing between the audience and the characters uh, and that feeling that you're sort of locked into this ticking clock um, and you're also experiencing distance and and difficulty with the men and there's no way out that was part of why I made it in this way and as a result it builds up and up and up and up the tension wasn't that also the kind of concept of 24 where it was meant to be in real time yes exactly Space. yeah right. 
numerous different scenes, numerous cuts though in 24. Yeah. Although they had the, do you remember the box screens? The, yeah, the, 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 the four screens, they would split away, particularly towards the end of an episode and you'd see four separate pieces of action going on all simultaneously. But they would cut. I mean, they would cheat in so many different of ways. Of course they would. But it was still Where, brilliant. Whereas this is these, these two young men, no spoiler alerts here, two young men, and you're literally following them for the full two hours as they meander their way. Yeah. And of course there are cuts, but they're smooth enough that you don't notice them as a viewer, I suppose. That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, but from a... So, so changing focal lengths would actually cause those hidden edits, edits to become apparent. So actually the film was shot on a single... 40 millimeter lens, which is quite unusual. And from a technical perspective, there was a lot to kind of try and factor in. It was just so much more challenging for the filmmakers and the actors as Sam and the actors, uh, Dean Charles Chapman and George Mackay, they allude to here. Sometimes you have a camera being carried by an operator hooked onto a wire and the wire carries it across more land and it's unhooked again. That operator runs with it, then steps onto a small Jeep which carries him another 400 yards and he steps off it again and goes round a corner. There's always that sort of get out of jail card that you have with the movie. Well, you know, we might be able to cut around this or we might take that scene out. That's not possible on this film. The dance of the camera and the mechanics all have to be in sync with what the actor's doing. It's like a piece of theater every take. Once it starts, it can't stop. If something goes wrong, you just have to keep going. And there were so many scenes that I just completely got lost in. I'm sorry! Royal Commission. Send me through. Orders from the general. Sometimes a scene was six minutes long, and when they'd call cut, I would completely forget who I was, and I was Blake. <laughs> that is intense pressure for an actor. Really yeah, intense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They 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 had to um, rehearse for six months. Apparently, it was like a play. It was like doing a play. Yeah. They had to learn the script back to front, rather than break it down into numerous yeah. different scenes that that can be compartmentalized. You know, there wasn't any of that luxury there. Um, and you know, talking about the logistics, I think this is uh, Sam and Dean actually talking about how the actual logistics of filming created even more headaches. In the early days of rehearsing, me and Joel, Sam and Roger turned up to this open field that was pretty much nothing there other than grass. And we had the script in our hand and we literally just walked and talked every single scene to see how long it took us to get from A to B. The scene has to be the exact length of the land and the land cannot be longer than the scene and the scene cannot be longer than the land. And so you have to rehearse every line of dialogue on location. And that's where it overlaps with doing theater because the world has to be crafted around the rhythm of the script. Whoa. You don't even think about time and pacing and place all being connected. Yeah. To, in order to execute yeah. something I like mean, that. I mean, if you're supposed to do a scene in a field and you end up crossing a stile and entering <laughs> into another field, then you've totally ruined the entire scene. If you're moving, because often these guys are running. Yeah. So they've got like rigs following them and carts and all sorts, you know, the way they actually do it. And there's no way, there's, there's no cutaway. So no. um, if, if, if they run behind a pillar, the camera simply follows them. It follows around the pillar and kind of, it's a really immersive way of shooting. And that's what's so good. It really draws you into the film because you're, you do feel like you're on that kind of journey with them. And they're going through this war-torn, you know, incredibly dangerous enemy, behind enemy lines, German mm. soldiers all over the place. And it's really, it's, it's like, a, as you said, it's like a thriller. It's like behind enemy lines type thing. Um, but it's, 
yeah, it, it's it's really yeah, it's a really intense viewing experience for sure. Um, and and you might think to yourself, oh, they're they're doing that to show off, you know, they're just they're they're doing it because they can almost. But uh, Sam Mendes insists that he and the director of photography, Sir Roger Deakins, were not doing it to simply impress viewers. Even though we've shot it in one shot, I, I don't think Roger and I want particularly the audience to be thinking about what the camera's doing. You know, we want them to be lost in the story. You might be unconsciously aware that there are no edits, but I don't, I don't think it's self-advertising. I hope it's not self-advertising in, in that way. Yeah, Roger did reveal there were a total of 48 edits in the film in total. And that's something, like you said, as having watched it, you didn't really realise it. They don't advertise it, as he said there, but no. you just kind of find out about it after the fact. You don't even really think about it. It's no, when you do film. find out about it, you think, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. They, they've managed to do that and pull that off. Not the first film to attempt it. As we know, here on Behind the Scenes, we're absolute film buffs. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock created this effect 71 years previously in a film called Rope, huh. which came out in 1948. But I would imagine probably a lot more basic in its premise, although I've not seen yeah. it, but I would imagine the techniques there. Um, but due to the nature of the filming, huge challenge for the actors when it came to the script because it was basically more like a play which is broke, um, rather than being broken up into, into separate scenes. The movie has been critically acclaimed. It's got an 89% score on Rotten Tomatoes. It became the first war film to win best visual effects since Tora Tora Tora. Wow. Very impressive. I'm going to go home. Genuinely, you've yeah. sold it to me. 1917 has been watched tonight. No way. I'm going to go back and watch it. Yeah, given the fact I haven't seen it, you've sold it to me, Rob. I will watch it and I will report back. Okay. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah, Reg has been in touch to say the move, this movie is more like a Modern Warfare 2 mission from PS5. <laughs> yeah, not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go watch it too. I'm definitely intrigued uh, by it. Maybe not tonight, it. like Chris, but sometime in the next two weeks, let's say. I, think I will definitely watch it. I'm film. pretty confident you'll enjoy it more than you enjoy Gladiator. I think I'm going to agree with that assessment. The Offscript Podcast. Chris, you're a fan of the big mystery. I love... You love some true crime. You love an unsolved mystery. Yes, it is a genre that, as uh, regular listeners will know, it is a genre that I do enjoy very much indeed. And we used to run a feature way back when, when we My first favorite. started Offscript, Jane that was on mysteries. Yes, and I think we... We completed it. We did. <laughs> <laughs> we did about 10 and couldn't find any more to discuss. Call of Duty, yes. Like we a video game. It. Yeah, we yeah. did. But we one, really of, did. one of the mysteries we talked about was that of D.B. Cooper. Yes. And I'm going to give you a short refresher. There is a reason for this, because he and his name have been in the news recently. But for, if you're not familiar with the story of D.B. Cooper, here's a little bit of a refresher for you. It all started on November 24th, 1971. A man arrives at a ticket counter of Northwest Orient Airlines, buys a one-way ticket from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Now, he's got this generic businessman look about him kind of nondescript there's not much to really describe there he's got a suit and tie hair is combed neatly to the side um you know when you look at that artist sketch of him that we've seen after the fact it reminds me a little bit of agent smith from the matrix yes it does yeah it does. right um they're in the air flight's taken off he gets the attention of a flight attendant hands her a note it says she should take a seat immediately because he has a bomb in his suitcase so Oof. what happens? But she follows orders. She sits down and he opens up the suitcase. She sees the sight of some wires, some red colored sticks. Immediately, she takes a note that he has given her to the captain and he makes his demands. What does he want? $200,000 in $20 bills, very specific, and four parachutes. So the flight lands safely in Seattle. Nobody's harmed here. 
The hijacker exchanges the 36 passengers, but then takes the money in the parachutes. Along with the crew and the plane, he heads off once again and tells them to set their sights for Mexico City. Now, at some point, because the crew have all been sent to the cockpit, they don't know exactly at what point between Seattle and Mexico City this has happened. He simply makes his escape. He is parachuted out of the plane, disappearing with his ransom money strapped to him. <laughs> so after this happens, of course, they have no idea where he's landed. They don't know at one point. You know, they land safely in Mexico City. He's not on board. They can see that he's left the plane. Um, so, so the FBI starts questioning hundreds of people. I, I know I sh- you can never condone, of course, illegal activities. But begrudgingly, part of me applauds D.B. Cooper. Mm. I mean, you can't help but be impressed. I, I mean, it's back then, it's genius. Yeah, you don't support it. But there is something impressive about a heist of that scale and nature and something that bold, right? Well, the FBI never found their man. They, again, questioned hundreds and hundreds of people, never got to the bottom of it. And now nine years later from this incident, 1980 at this point, just around Portland, a young boy, his name is Brian, he's digging a fire pit in the sand. And what does he find? But three bundles of cash just below no the way. surface. The rubber bands are still there. Five thousand eight hundred dollars. Now remember that DB Cooper took two hundred thousand dollars in twenty dollar notes. But this is five thousand eight hundred of that. And guess what? The serial numbers matched with the ones they had given Cooper for the ransom. So it was the first evidence really of this. But despite that, it didn't really yield any results. They never got to the bottom of it. So did he die in the jump? We don't know. What happened to the rest of the cash? It so, remains a mystery. So, interestingly enough, then, there's no suggestion, because I never knew about this amendment, uh, this uh, young man, Brian Ingram. The insinuation there is the cash was, wasn't was buried there deliberately in order to come back from it, or it was just... Well, I think the point is, is people don't know. There are different theories about the cash. One of the theories is that the river actually took it downstream and it got stuck in a bit of a sandbank. Another right. theory is that he did bury it thinking he would come back for it, but then why just about $6,000 when he's got another... You know, however much with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much? So no, come $194, on. One hundred and ninety-four thousand dollars with well, him. Well, okay. <laughs> Should have asked still, that question of Robbie. He's, uh, he's still, still be here at six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> He's still he's still kept that with him. So how does that random almost six thousand dollars end up there? So we don't know. And the FBI eventually just had to close the case in 2016. That's right. Well, I've got a little amendment to this story because it's been making headlines in the last 24 hours because an expert, and we'll unpack this expert in just a second, has said that the identity of D.B. Cooper could be revealed for the very first time thanks to a DNA breakthrough. Now, to add to your story, Stones, the only clue that the mysterious D.B. Cooper left behind was a clip-on tie from the U.S. retail chain free plug here, J.C. Penny. That was the only clue that the authorities had. Now, his identity, as you say, has never been revealed, but an investigator by the name of Eric Ullis, who's been trying to solve the mystery now for more than a decade, reckons that all could be set to change because he has said that he had recently met with a scientist by the name of Tom Kay. Now, he has tested the tie twice using a special device that is able to collect the smallest particles. Kay was initially hoping to analyse the tie for traces of certain chemicals or metals, which could then shed some more light on its owner, but the duo claim that the device is also able to collect 
DNA. Now, the pair now plan on sharing the DNA that they captured with a lab that specialises in metageomic DNA analysis, an incredibly advanced type of DNA analysis that enables scientists to separate individual strands of DNA. And by doing that, they hope finally that will lead to who the perpetrator is. And given the fact it was so long ago, I mean, there is the distinct possibility that D.B. Cooper is no longer on this mortal coil. Of course, as you said, one theory is he didn't survive the jump. Yeah, but then his body was never found, nor was the remaining cash. Exactly that. What do you think? I think he got away with it. So do I. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, again, we haven't heard that the authorities tampered with the parachutes. They gave him legitimate parachutes. Mm -hmm. We have to assume he was proficient in parachute jumping, given the fact he asked it, he would have checked it. So, yeah, for me, I think, like you, Sonal, he survived, but it's the backstory. Why 200,000? What did he need it for? He was heading to Zewataneo. He was heading there. <laughs> <laughs> He was, Where else would you go? He's currently really? building yeah. boats on a beach. Yeah. Hanging out with Morgan the Pacific Freeman. <laughs> Pacific Ocean. I just thought Penny dropped there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, is he alive? Is he dead? I think ultimately, whenever you get wind of you know, DNA analysis, the advancements in technology, that is one of the mysteries that we covered many moons yeah. ago. Why D.B. Cooper? Just out of interest. Oh, well, it's actually interesting because the name that he gave the um, ticketing counter was Dan Cooper. It was actually a media yes. mistake that led it to be D.B. Cooper because one of the people that the FBI were questioning had the name D.B. Uh, it was kind of mistakenly attributed. What he had actually said at the counter was Dan Cooper. DB is a better moniker, isn't it? It is. It's it works. way more mysterious. It yeah. totally Dan works. Cooper is just, yeah. you know. doesn't yeah. have the same ring to it. He's no. got plumbing business down yeah, the road. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But just imagine that he is still alive. And every time that there's more media sort of um, attention around him, him just sort of sitting back. He's got like a family of five. Yeah. And he's just hanging out watching it all happen. Knowing he's got that young, he's at the center of it. Young grandkids running around. Right? He pulls them in and says, listen, you know DB Cooper? That's me, but shh, don't tell him. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I should point out, and we're not glorifying this, he didn't hurt anyone. No, no one was harmed. Nobody was harmed in this. Okay, not that we're condoning it. Exactly. Still. Hijacking a plane, very serious, but it is important to note that nobody was yeah. harmed, everybody was safe. So let's see what happens. It turns out this DNA analysis, they're hoping, <sighs> will reveal some results by the end of this year. So we still have some Watch time to wait. Space. <laughs> How they made it on off script, charting the life journeys of the most successful people on the planet. <laughs> We're talking now about Dr. Jane Goodall. She's currently in Dubai because Expo City announced its alliance with the Jane Goodall Institute's Roots and Shoots program. In fact, she was a guest on the agenda earlier today with Georgia, so I'm sure you can catch that on the podcast if you missed it earlier. But we're discussing her her and how they made it. Because, of course, I remember hearing about Jane Goodall in school, Dr. Jane Goodall in school from a young age. I remember she's been visiting Dubai for a long time. I'm pretty sure she came to my school when I, when I was a kid. Um, Did she? Yeah. You lucky so-and-so. Yeah, but I think she, she makes the rounds to schools around the she world. She never made it to the northeast of Scotland. <laughs> no, to no, no. High that's, school that's something that's that. normal in Dubai, like famous people <laughs> just stopping by. <laughs> no, oh, yeah, listen. Barack Obama yeah. gave the address at our graduation <laughs> ceremony. Who did yours? Uh, nobody. Yeah, now it's normal. But back in 1993, not so much, you know. Anyway, well, take it for granted. It was, it was special, obviously. But I think she's one of those people we all know about. But I didn't actually know much about her 
life story. We know about the work that she's done, groundbreaking research studying chimpanzees, um, you know, also transforming our understanding of the natural world, a conservationist who has inspired so many people as well. But I didn't know too much about her. So I thought, let's dig in. Let's find out how she actually managed to get into this research. And in the 60s at that, when it wasn't so common for women to be scientists, quite frankly. Mm. She was born Dr. Valerie, well, she was born Valerie Jane Morris Goodall, became doctor, of course, eventually. And she was born April 3rd, 1934 oh, in Lord. England. So she's 90 this year. She's turning 90 this year. Whoa. Can you believe it? I mean, you never guess it. Her passion for animals began, uh, began at such an early age. In fact, it was just at one years old that her father gave her a toy chimp. She called it Jubilee. It was a little soft toy. Sometimes I think it's the, I think it's the same one she carries around with her on her speeches. You've seen it, right? I, I've little not, chimp no, eating no. a banana. She carries that around. I believe it's the same one, but she's had that particular toy that she got at the age of Love one it. that inspired her. When she was just four years old, um, she went missing. In the that house. toy's got to smell pretty bad if it's 89 <laughs> years of age. Hopefully. Hopefully the washing machine a couple of times <laughs> If it is the same one, hopefully it's gone through a dry cleaner too. Right. Fingers yeah. crossed for yeah. that. <laughs> but if we ever do get a chance to talk to Dr. Yeah. Jane, we'll have to ask her that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Georgia would have asked her that question No, somehow. probably not. That's a really off-script question, I think. Um, but when she was four years old, she went missing. The family starts looking for her. It's been hours. They have no idea where she is. They even called the police to report her missing, she says. It turns out she was in a hen house just looking at how a chicken lays an egg just for studying. several hours, just watching this. It was at four years old. Brilliant. It's clear she had her calling very early on. It was her love for reading, though, that really cemented in her mind the dream to visit Africa and just to be among the animals one day. But, you know, when I was born, I popped out of my mother's womb loving animals, mm-hmm. everything from earthworms, birds and squirrels. When I was 10, I read Tarzan of the Apes. Mm-hmm. And of course, 10 year old girls are very romantic and I fell passionately in love with this glorious Lord of the Jungle. And what did he do? He married the wrong Jane. <laughs> very good. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so she's got this dream in her mind. I mean, she's had it from as young as when you can basically think and form thoughts, right? But unfortunately, she wasn't able to afford college after she graduated high school. So she attended secretarial school. She does a lot of odd jobs, but she still has this dream to realize, especially considering it was unconventional for those days. My dream began, I will grow, grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them. You know, we weren't scientists in those days, women, and everybody laughed except my mother. And what she said to me is what I say to young people around the world. If you really want this, you have to work really hard, take advantage of all opportunities, but don't give up. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually stop to think about that. It's the 60s. You're in your early 20s and you say, I want to go to Africa and live amongst the wild animals. I mean, yeah. Who is supporting you in that? Yeah, I, I would imagine there's an awful lot, maybe a bit different now, but an awful lot of mums and dads back in those days are giving you a clip round the ear and saying, wisen up. Exactly. Come on, Jane, you need to get to, into the real world. That's just a, yeah. a kind of fancy, a fancy idea. And don't take for granted as well how fearful people are yeah. of women traveling alone. My mom gave me a hard time and going my Rome alone <laughs> to like the nicest place on earth. Did and she? Yeah. There's just this fear about women going places alone sometimes, I think. Um, you know, and it turns out she lucked out. 
there were certain circumstances in her life that that took her to the right place because she had a school friend who happened to move to a farm outside of Nairobi. And now she knew it was um, Jane's childhood dream, of course, to live among the African wildlife. So she invites her to stay for a while. So Goodall at that point is 22 years old. She's saved up her money to pay for that passage to Kenya. She's been waitressing, doing secretarial work, you know, working at the post office in her hometown, doing whatever she needs to so do. So fair play to her. Again, you heard that if you work hard, if you have a goal, work hard at it. She saved for two years to have enough money to take that leap. Yeah. And she's standing there on the ship dock in March 1957, thinking she's about to get on this ship to fulfill her dream to go to Africa. And she realizes... She can't find her passport. Oh, no. Now, imagine how differently her life would have turned out if somebody hadn't found it and returned it to the travel agency that she got her ticket from. It happened to have the itinerary, so they were able to track down the travel agency and actually return it there. So she did manage to get on this ship. It takes three weeks. The the ship is called the Kenya Castle. It takes three weeks for her to reach Mombasa by sea. And about two months later, it's a relatively small expat community in Kenya there and in Nairobi especially. She happens to meet the well-known paleontologist, Louis Leakey. Now, he immediately offers her a job at the Natural History Museum where he's a curator. And just, you know, she just basically meets the right person, stumbles into this museum job. And she ends up participating with the Leakeys on a number of expeditions that they're doing. Now, Leakey's wife, Mary, is also a paleontologist. And it turns out she found fossils that prove the African origins of Homo sapiens. No way. Yeah. And Goodall was there along for the ride. Her job was to wake up early at the crack of dawn and spend hours just clearing away dirt and rock with a pick. You know, obviously she's got the interest. Mm. She's obviously a hard worker as Jane, but... You know, you think of those sliding doors moments. She was so lucky to just meet yeah. Louis Leakey and the rest is history. I mean, she was fearless on stepping onto that plane, going by Fair. herself. Fair. And then when she got there, exactly that. It's like you take the first step and sometimes the you universe conspires, right? Correct. And a little bit of an interesting goss for you here. I think you'll like this. Back. I love a bit of goss. Well, you love a bit of goss, right? Well, Louis Leakey, on the topic of his wife, turns out... He frequently protested his love for Jane while she was in her 20s and he was in his late 50s, married with three children. So she said, I was in a very difficult position because on the one hand, I hugely admired him. He knew so much, but he also had my whole future in his hands. And on the other hand, I thought, no, thanks. Somehow their professional relationship and their friendship survived this, despite him being a little bit inappropriate with her, a young Poor Jane Mary. Goodall. What became of Mary? Did Lucy and Mary stay together? I mean, I don't know. I didn't look into oh, it. I have a feeling that's what you're going to be that's looking into. Oh, I'm about to Google right now. <laughs> Lewis and Mary Leakey, what became of them? Well, you know, regardless of Lewis's behavior, he is responsible for setting her on her path to studying chimpanzees. Well, I've done a bit of research. I can't ascertain whether him and Mary did part ways, but Lewis uh, passed away in 1972. Mary would later pass away in 1996. So Mary was 24 years without him, so... Yeah, well, there you go. So she uh, did come across Lewis Leakey, who offered her a job, and then he realized when they had done some field research together that she was the perfect person to test a hypothesis he had. Now, he believed, a hypothesis that was put forth by Charles Darwin, that humans and chimpanzees shared an evolutionary ancestor. We take some of these things for granted now, don't we? We really do. So Charles Darwin had put it forward, but by 1957, it had been mostly forgotten. It wasn't something that people were really thinking much about. But he thought, Louis Leakey, that is, that a closer study of chimpanzees in the wild might tell us a little bit more about that shared history. So 
he figured out that he had a woman for the job. The place that she would head to was the Gombe Stream Game Reserve. It's called the Gombe Stream National Park today in Tanzania. And he actually thought, now bearing in mind, Jane didn't have an undergraduate degree. No. She didn't go to college. She had no formal academic training, really, to be a researcher. But he figured that was an advantage because he thought she wouldn't be biased by traditional, Fair. conventional thoughts and would have a more open mind to do this study with. So he manages to get the funds together. And in 1960, she makes her way, her way there. The early weeks, of course, there were very challenging. She developed a fever, which is thought probably to have been malaria, Jeepers. that delayed the start of her work. And in addition to that, it was deemed inappropriate for Jane to travel alone to Tanzania. Initially, I wasn't allowed to be on my own. The British government, as it then was, said, no, this is absolutely almost amoral for a young girl to go out in the bush. So I had to choose a companion, and my mother came with me for three months. And then, but she, she left then. It, obviously, the bush proved a little bit much for her. No, the bush didn't prove much. It was just that the authorities decided, well, I was crazy and I was okay. And she had many things to do in England. <laughs> that is a supportive mother. It really I'll is. I'll tell you what, my mother is not coming into the jungle <laughs> with me to study chimpanzees. I don't think my mom would come with me. You either, know, to be fair. she loves me, but not that much. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Um, so having no preconceived notions really of what this animal research was supposed to be, she did manage to break a couple of the conventional rules of research at the time or as they were. I think things have changed since then. But back then, for example, you weren't supposed to name the animals. They were given numbers because it was, that, it was thought that that would give you a bias. You know, you would form some sort of emotional bond. attachment yeah. or bond with them. And that would proceed. I mean, that would interfere with your with your research. impartiality. Yeah, um and it turns out she was only the second researcher really to attempt to study chimps in the wild. Before her, that had only been one real attempt. And even that, the person, the first scientist supposedly had a trail of 22 porters and, and didn't really get up close and personal, sort of studied from a distance. So she was the first to really do this in the manner that she did, which was to integrate herself into their habitat, live alongside them really, as opposed to simply observing them from a distance. So when she, she went proper, like lived with the chimps. Yeah, yeah. She, you know, and she had to make an approach because bearing in mind, these chimps are not used to humans. This is not an inhabited right. place. So when she got a little bit too close, they would just run away. But she was lucky that one of the older chimps, who was a bit of a leader, she named him David Greybeard. <laughs> Which just is weird. Yeah. Attaching names. Like that to chimps, it weirds me out. But you know, David we were, Greybeard, we the chimp. We were watching Chimp Empire and they all had names. Yeah, that's it. And it just so worked, didn't it? It does. You know, but it's still a bit of a kind of weird construct for me. David Gre Greybeard is a chimp. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine? She's like, hey, David, you know, <laughs> good seeing you again. And David just kind of gets a bit friendly with her. Yeah, he was the first one to do that. And after he kind of broke the ice, the rest of them followed. So it wasn't long before she made her very first breakthrough discovery. It had long been thought that we were the only creatures on Earth that used and made tools. Man, the toolmaker, is how we were defined. Here was David Greybeard using a tool. It seems so simple now, but it's hard to overstate how big of a deal this was at the time. Because literally one of the things that defined humans in those days was the fact that we were the only ones to be able to make and use tools. And pretty early on in her research, she sees this chimpanzee, David Greybeard, Taking, first of all, making the tool, taking this glade of uh, stiff grass and, and sort of cleaning it up 
and then sticking it into a termite hole to get the termites out so that they could eat them. And that's a rudimentary tool. Of course. So this discovery made international headlines to the point that, you know, she sent off a message to Dr. Lewis Leakey and he wrote back, we must now redefine man, redefine tool or accept chimpanzees as human. That's how much of a sort of mind-bending thought this was Obviously, to people back then. You know, I have to be clear. I'm aware of Jane. I wasn't necessarily aware of the timeline. I'm a little bit staggered that we only discovered this in, what, 1960? Yeah. It was that, 1960 that she made this discovery, that other animals use tools. I, I mean, that's I'm kind of flummoxed at that. You would have thought long before then, people, all it is is observing. Yeah. You know, it's not, I, I don't I guess want it was to downplay so... our achievements, but it's, it's not hard to sit and observe. But I guess it was so novel what she did at the time, which was to go be in there. As we said previously, habitat, scientists yeah. would sort of look from afar. They wouldn't get up close and personal. Spending so, 24-7. Yeah. Her yeah. doing that is what enabled her to make so many discoveries. Um, you know, she did, there was beyond that so many different things. For example, um, that the they form bonds with each other, that they go through adolescence, that they feel emotions. Again, things we take for granted now, but we only know because of her early research. And, and so, of course, been furthered since then by other people. But initially, despite her making a tremendous number of discoveries with this innovative approach, it turns out there were a lot of people who wanted to discredit her, who weren't a fan of her. You know, anytime some, some young buck comes in and tries to do something new, I'm sure it didn't people help. don't like it. At the time, I'm sure it doesn't help that she was female as well. Yeah. There would be young, a lot young and female. female and technically untrained. Yeah. Didn't have a degree. So you add all of those things together and a lot of people said her research should be discarded. Um, but she persevered and eventually, remarkably, managed to enter Cambridge University to get her PhD, even though she didn't have a bachelor's degree. She was only the eighth person at the university to ever have been accepted to go ahead with a doctorate without having an, without undergraduate. Having an undergraduate. I mean, think about it, in today's day and age. There's no way you're getting a PhD today without doing your undergraduate and then a master's on top of it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was quite an accomplishment. Clearly, it was a recognition of everything that she had achieved. Um, and again, once she reached the university, people were aghast at the methods that she was using, how she had named the chimpanzees, as we mentioned, um, for even suggesting that the chimps had emotions and personalities. She also upset people when she wrote her first book, My Friends, The Wild Chimpanzees. It was published by National Geographic. But again, we take this for granted today because it's seen a good thing to be a scientist talking to the public. Back then... To be talking Ooh. to the public and to write something for the general public rather than for an academic audience was, was a, no, a faux no. pas. That's it was sort of, you're not a serious me. scientist if you're speaking to the public. Crazy. So she set the tone also for popular scientists in, in addition to all of that, that research and work she was doing. Uh, we've just had a text in. I mean, again, I come back to it. 1960, for goodness sake, we're only finding that out. And as someone's pointing out, we reached the moon in 1963. Yeah. And we've gone into outer space just three years after realising that chimpanzees can use tools. interact and use tools. I mean, that blows my mind when you think of it. Like that. that tells you how much we're focused on other things Correct. other than our natural environment, That's right? That's exactly it. We take it for granted. Yeah, we definitely do. Anyway, she did earn her PhD in 1966. She continued to work at Gombe for about 20 years. And eventually she became a conservationist as well. Uh, when she noticed that a lot of people were talking about deforestation and the challenges uh, of that as well. So, you know, congratulations to Dr. Jane Goodall for all the great work she does and for her collaboration and here in the UAE as well. She's in Dubai. She might be listening to this, Jane. The invitation is there. We'd love to have 
Jane Goodall in with us for an hour. A big interview with Jane Goodall. Watch this space. Yeah, as Sanjay has said, that would be really platinum, wouldn't it? It would be. Yeah. No doubt about it. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.